0: Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, earnestly, Lord, we ask of you now as we reopen your word to hear it taught, to hear it proclaimed, we pray, Lord, let us not hear it in vain. We therefore beseech you For the ministry of the Holy Spirit to effectually accompany both the delivery of your word through preaching and the hearing thereof that by your word of truth through the Spirit's power we would be awakened renewed revived sanctified To that end, Lord, that even this day we will be more and more conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus from one degree of glory to another. We trust in you for these holy things to be applied by the Spirit's power through the word of God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen. I invite you to open up God's word to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, as we are considering this morning what I have entitled, Believers Need the Gospel, Believers Need the Gospel, Romans chapter 1, reading verses 16 and 17. Shall live by faith. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, sufficient word of the living God. William Carey was not ashamed of the gospel. Like Paul the Apostle, Carey truly felt himself indebted, eager, and unashamed to bring the gospel to as many people as God would employ him to reach. One thing, though, that is so amazing about Carey's joy in the gospel is that these biblical convictions were not widely felt within the church of the Western world. William Carey, for the most part, stood alone in his passion to take the gospel to the world beyond his own home. In fact, the general feeling among many Protestant churches was that Since God was sovereign, he would take care of saving the heathen nations if they would be saved apart from any missionary endeavor to reach those nations. Moreover, any enthusiasm for world missions was scorned as unbiblical and even absurd. William Carey actually encountered such scorn over foreign missions at a local minister's meeting he attended one evening in 1786. Towards the end of the meeting, Carey made a motion to have a general discussion on whether or not the Great Commission applied to the church in all ages rather than just to the apostles in the first century. The reason he brought this up was because many pastors of his day believed that the Great Commission had already been fulfilled by the apostles and thus had no bearing of application on subsequent generations in the church. But for William Carey, This interpretation of Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20 seemed to be a misinterpretation. Not only that, but a year before this meeting, Carey's heart had already begun to stir in the direction of foreign missions. Furthermore, with the influence of such godly men like Andrew Fuller, John Sutcliffe, and John Ryland Jr., the vision for spreading the gospel to the world at large was fast becoming William Carey's own personal vision. So with a heart growing in earnest to reach the world with the gospel, Kerry desired to spread this vision to other churches in his Baptist association. Hence, to get the vision out, Kerry raised the motion over the popular interpretation of the Great Commission. And no sooner had he brought this motion to the floor, but that it was shot down with condemnation by a senior minister in the meeting. Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Sadly, this sentiment, as just mentioned, was the general tone and feeling of most churches. However, though this may have been the majority view of foreign missions, it was unbiblical. But by God's grace, this unbiblical view of missions did not quench the flame In the heart of William Carey to proclaim Jesus Christ to the nations. In June 1793, this British-born, Christ-converted shoemaker-turned-Baptist minister would see his homeland of England for the very last time, making his 15,000-mile journey to India where God would pour him out for the glory of the gospel. In 40 years... Of missionary labor. Amidst enormous impediments and in spite of his own mistakes and errors in judgment, William Carey would live a life that proved the gospel was indeed the power of God for salvation. By the time of his death in 1834, he was the catalyst for 26 churches planted in India with more than 40 fellow laborers engaged in the work. He also translated the Bible or parts of it into no less than 34 languages including six completed translations of the whole Bible and 23 of the New Testament. And William Carey's conviction behind these fruitful labors was the expression of a man who was not ashamed of the gospel, but made his boast in the gospel. Listen to Carey in his own words as he signified his gospel boasting. When I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong. But amongst so many obstacles, it would die unless upheld by God. Well, I have God and his word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times worse, though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith fixed on that sure word would rise above all obstructions and overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. And again, writing to a friend back in England of his confidence of gospel success and sufficiency, Cary said this, I would not abandon the mission for all the fellowships and finest spheres in England. The work to which God has set his hands will infallibly prosper. Christ has begun to besiege this ancient and strong fortress and will assuredly carry it. We only want to fill this country with the knowledge of Christ. We are neither working at uncertainty nor afraid for the result. Christ must reign till Satan has not an inch of territory. Well, suffice it to say, William Carey was not ashamed of the gospel. He was convinced, as the Apostle Paul was, when he wrote in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And what Cary's life truly demonstrated was his conviction that the gospel is for everyone. Over against the misapplication and misunderstanding of the Great Commission during his lifetime, Cary understood that it was still the responsibility of the church to reach the world with the gospel. And convinced as he was that God was completely sovereign in salvation, Carey was a good Calvinist. Carey knew that to bring the gospel to unbelieving nations, because God was sovereign, would actually prove to be a success. Why? It's because it has pleased God to save a people from every nation through the preaching of the gospel. Henceforth, William Carey was not ashamed of the gospel, but made his boast in the gospel as God's divine ordained means of saving his people out of every corner of the world. Now, for the last two weeks, we have been considering this whole subject of what it means to be not ashamed of the gospel. And we have been taking this into account because this is the very theme of where we have been camped out in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. To understand these two verses, I've raised a question as a point of entry into our exposition of this passage. Why was Paul the apostle not ashamed of the gospel? Since Paul declares here in verse 16 that he was not ashamed of the gospel, it is important for us to find out why. What were his reasons for having no shame, but rather boasting and vaunting in the gospel? Why was he so ready and eager to preach the gospel to these believers in Rome, not to mention to the rest of the Roman Empire, especially since he knew how foolish and offensive this message was to the natural mind of sinful man? Well, from Romans 1.16, we've answered this question so far in three different ways. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because, first, it was a powerful gospel, second, it was about salvation. And third, it was for potential believers. Tying these three answers together, we can say this. Paul had no shame but only boasting of the gospel because he understood the gospel to be invested with God's saving power, proclaiming the saving work of Jesus Christ and was therefore a message worthy and necessary for all sinners everywhere to hear and obey. Now, in our last study, we began focusing on the words in verse 16, to everyone who believes, to everyone who believes. From these words, we have gleaned a twofold truth about the gospel. The gospel is for potential and actual believers. The gospel is for potential and actual believers. Our only consideration of this twofold truth so far is that the gospel is for potential believers believers. This means that the gospel is not a message for some, but a message for everyone, no matter who they are or where they have come from. And the reason no one should ever be excluded from hearing the gospel is because the whole world is under the power of sin. And the only hope for anyone in the world to be saved, therefore, is through Jesus Christ. Moreover, as the Church of Jesus Christ, we have been given a divine commission from our Lord to go into all the world and proclaim God's saving gospel to everyone universally and without discrimination. So the gospel is a message for potential believers. Now this morning, I want us to return to these same words in Romans 1:16, to everyone who believes, and consider now how the gospel is not only for potential believers. But the gospel is for actual believers. Look again at what Paul writes in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is for believers. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes believes it is important to observe here that the verb believes is a present tense verb it's a present tense verb the gospel therefore is not for those who once believed but it is for everyone who believes for a lifetime this means that as a christian i still need the gospel in fact i need the gospel every day for the rest of my life in this world on my way to glory no christian gets over the gospel No Christian should ever think that they grow beyond the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who goes on believing. And that is a more true rendering of the Greek text. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who goes on believing. Now, just in case we're not convinced yet about this truth let me remind you of who paul is writing who is he writing to in this letter we know as romans the book of romans was not written to the roman empire nor was it written to any political official in the roman empire this letter by paul was sent to a what a church it was sent to a church that was existing in the city of rome paul was writing to christians Remember how he identifies his reading audience of this letter in verses 6 and 7 here in chapter 1. Look at it. He says, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, loved by God, and called to be saints. This letter is written for Christians. And to these Christians in Rome, notice what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul was eager to preach the gospel first and foremost to these believers, these Christians in Rome. So then this monumental exposition of the gospel we call the book of Romans was meant first for Christians, not necessarily for non-Christians. Though we certainly expound the doctrines of the gospel, we call the book of Romans to unbelievers. But the target audience of this letter And this is what's so important. Listen to this now. The target audience of this letter, which is all about the gospel, the target audience are believers. Believers. That's who Paul's writing to. Therefore, based on the book of Romans, not to mention the rest of the New Testament, the gospel is for believers. Now, saying all this certainly raises a very important and very practical question. Why do I need the gospel as a Christian? Why? Well, there are three ways in which I want to answer this question from the context of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Since he's expounding the gospel to Christians here in Romans, then it would be good to answer this question from Romans So, why do I need the gospel as a Christian? First, the gospel reminds us that in and of ourselves, we would never be good enough for God's acceptance, but only deserving his wrath and judgment. In Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul labors this one great truth, this one great and terrible truth, that all people everywhere are under the wrath of God because of their sin. This includes pagans in chapter 1, verses 19 through 32. This includes moralists in chapter 2, 1 through 16. And this includes religious people in chapter 2, 17 to 29. No one escapes God's righteous wrath and judgment apart from being saved by God because in and of ourselves we are sinful, we're unrighteous, and we're rebellious against God by nature. God's acceptance of me is not going to come by anything I can do on my own. Now, as a Christian, we need to be reminded of this because it is very easy for us to fall into the snare of pride and self-righteousness where we somehow think we somehow think that we're good enough. For God's acceptance, there is still enough sin left in me as a Christian to deceive me into thinking that I can do things to merit God's favor. Look at how much I pray, read my Bible, look at how many people I share the gospel with, look at how faithful I am to attend every service of the church, and the list of such good and holy disciplines could run for miles and miles and miles. But all the while, I'm checking off my list of fulfilling these spiritual disciplines. What's happening? I'm starting to get puffed up with pride in myself. And and I'm, and I'm saying to myself, you know, God must really be very proud of me. He must really think much of me. Why, look at all these Christian works that I'm so faithful at doing. I really can't wait to see the crown I'm going to be wearing once I'm in glory. Yet if this attitude of sinful pride is not bad enough, we then start looking down our noses at other Christians who are not just as disciplined, obedient, and committed as we are. And in a very subtle way, we begin to feel spiritually superior to them. But it's right here, beloved, listen to me, it's right here in this moment that we need the gospel quite desperately as Christians. You say, why is that? It's because the gospel is going to remind us that in and of ourselves, we would never be good enough for God's acceptance, but only deserving of his wrath and judgment. Indeed, the gospel will remind us that there is nothing good in us, nor anything good that we can Due to ever merit God's favor. Therefore, the gospel will be used by God to kill the temptation to be spiritually prideful and self-righteous. This is what I need to hear every day. Every day. I need to hear Romans chapter 3, that there is none righteous, no, not one. I need to hear that every day. I need to hear every day that there is none who are spiritually understanding or who seek after God of their own accord. I need to hear every day that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is the first reason why we need the gospel as Christians. The gospel keeps us humble and guards us from seeking God's acceptance by our own performance because we're reminded that in and of ourselves we will never be good enough for God's acceptance but only deserving of his wrath and judgment. Second, the gospel reminds us that our sole acceptance with God and our only true righteousness is in Jesus Christ and him alone. This truth of the gospel is the flip side of the first. On the one hand, we must be reminded that left to ourselves, we are lost, unrighteous, and without hope of God's acceptance. And this humbles us and keeps us from the from pride and self-righteousness, but on the other hand, listen to this, on the other hand, we also need the gospel to remind us that if we are accepted by God and declared righteous by his divine standard, then this will only come by Jesus Christ and him alone. Having this truth always before us as believers will keep us from the subtle dangers and bondage of what is called legalism. It simply means that reminding ourselves every day that Jesus Christ is our sole acceptance and righteousness from God will keep us from seeking to base our standing with God on our own performance. In Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21 and going all the way to chapter 5 and verse 11, Paul leaves us in no doubt that if we're to have... God's perfect acceptance and favor, if we're to be declared righteous by God, which is the essence of what is called justification, then it shall come by no other source but the person and work of Jesus Christ the Lord. It is Christ and his perfect performance of redemption that is the basis of our standing with God. Look at how Paul explains this in Romans chapter 3. Jesus, God has justified us by his grace as a gift. Now think about this. God has declared you and I perfectly righteous. Perfectly righteous. He has declared us to be a people who have obeyed his law perfectly, whose lives are in perfect conformity To his righteous standard. You say what is that? That's justification. That's justification. And God justifies us. We're told by his grace as a gift. This comes to us without merit or payment on our part. There was nothing we could do. In all our performing. To gain this status of justification before God. So then. On what basis do we have this standing with God of perfect acceptance and righteousness? What's the foundation? Well, look at verse 24, Romans three twenty-four, And are justified by His grace as a gift. And then look at this. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the sole basis... The sole basis of our justification by God is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is what Christ did, and only what he did, which has gained for us justification by God. Jesus Christ is the sole basis of our righteousness and acceptance with God. Now, as a Christian, we need to hear this. Every single day. Every day. Because it is far too easy for us to think that our performance is somehow going to put us in right standing with God. Remember remember who the book of Romans was written to. It wasn't written to a bunch of unbelievers. This was written to believers. So, I need to hear this every day. Jerry Bridges, in his wonderful book, The Discipline of Grace, gives a good illustration of how Christians can become legalists that is basing their standing with God on their performance and not even know it. I'm going to quote Bridges here at length. Listen closely. This is just a very good illustration, a good scenario, which every Christian in here can relate to. Bridges writes this. Consider two radically different days in your own life. The first one is a good day spiritually for you. You get up promptly when your alarm goes off and have a refreshing and profitable quiet time as you read your Bible and pray. Your plans for the day generally fall into place and you somehow sense the presence of God with you. To top it off, you unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is truly searching. As you talk with the person, you silently pray for the Holy Spirit to help you and to also work in your friend's heart. The second day is just the opposite. You don't arise at the first ring of the alarm. Instead, you shut it off and go back to sleep. When you finally awaken, it's too late to have quiet time. you hurriedly gulp down some breakfast, rush off to the day's activities. You feel guilty about oversleeping and missing your quiet time, and things just generally go wrong all day. You become more and more irritable as the day wears on, and you certainly don't sense God's presence in your life. That evening, however, you quite unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is really interested in receiving Christ as Savior. Would you enter those two witnessing opportunities with a different degree of confidence? Would you be less confident on the bad day than on the good day? Would you find it difficult to believe that God would bless you and use you in the midst of a, of a rather bad spiritual day? If you answered yes to those questions, you have lots of company among believers. I've described these two scenarios to a number of audiences and asked, would you respond differently? Invariably, about 80% indicate that they would. They would feel less confident of God's blessing while sharing Christ at the end of a bad day than they would after a good one. Is such thinking justified? Does God work that way? The answer to both questions is no. Because God's blessing does not depend on our performance. Why then do we think this way? It is because we do believe that God's blessing on our lives is somehow conditioned upon our spiritual performance. If we perform well and had a good day, we assume we're in a position for God to bless us. Oh, we know God's blessings come to us through Christ, but we also have this vague but very real notion that they're also conditioned on our behavior. An all too common misconception of the Christian life. The thinking that although we are saved by grace, we earn or forfeit God's blessings in our daily lives by our performance. How many Christians do you think live there? Far too many. Far too many. Beloved, this is why Christians need the gospel every day. The basis of our standing with God is not our performance, good or bad. But the basis of our standing with God is Jesus Christ and what Christ has done. In fact, the only reason God does bless us with spiritual blessings is because of Christ alone, because of Christ alone. Now, let me make this clear, okay, important qualifier. This doesn't mean that we should never pray. This doesn't mean that we should never read our Bibles or share the gospel. But what it does mean is that none of these spiritual disciplines, none of these spiritual exercises of the Christian life make us any more righteous or gain us any more favor with God than than what we already have in Jesus Christ. We therefore must not fall into the trap of legalism. One writer wrote in this regard, The legalist allows his performance of spiritual duties to become his preoccupation and a source of self-righteous pride. In doing so, he unwittingly walks away from the main thing, the gospel. I know the temptation to legalism. That's why when I complete my daily devotions and close my Bible, I make a point of reminding myself that Jesus' work, not mine, is the basis of my forgiveness and acceptance with God. What joy the gospel gives me I can approach the throne of God with confidence, not because I've done a good job in my spiritual duties, but because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is why no Christian should go one day without preaching the gospel to their own hearts. I need to be reminded that my sole acceptance with God, my only true righteousness is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. As a Christian, we all need to be reminded of that because by nature, we're all legalists. We're all a bunch of legalists by nature. And that's why God gave us Romans and Galatians and other wonderful books of the Bible to teach us and to remind us and to renew our minds as Christians. Not to unbelievers, but to believers. Remember where your justification comes from. Remember, it is not by your merits, it is by the merits of Christ alone. And you cannot be any more justified before God Than what you already are now by faith alone in Christ alone. Nothing you do or nothing you don't do will justify you any more than what you are perfectly by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You realize how freeing that is? How incredibly freeing that is for us as Christians? Do you understand that? Do you get that? Connect the dots but we slip back we go down that slippery slope so easily to legalism and again one of the many reasons God the holy spirit gave us romans and galatians because this is a constant problem but there's a third and final reason that we need the gospel as believers The gospel always affirms the grace and love of God in Christ toward us even when we have fallen in sin and disobedience. Not only does the gospel keep us from pride and self-righteousness and legalism, but the gospel also keeps us from despairing into a spiral of false guilt and condemnation when we sin as Christians. This is so important for us to understand. One reason this is so important for us to understand is because all of us are going to sin as believers. All of us. In fact, we sin every day as Christians. Every day we sin in thought, in word, in deed. Therefore, we need the gospel preaching to us at all times that even on our worst spiritual days, listen to this, even on our worst spiritual days, We are not beyond the reach of God's grace and love for us in Christ Jesus. We're not. Let me say this even more plainly. Our sin, listen to this now, our sin will never eclipse the grace of God in the cross of Christ. Our sin will never eclipse Will never black out the grace of God in the cross of Christ. Never. Never. This means that no matter how bad we have stumbled and fallen as Christians, God will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Our sin cannot undo the work of Christ in our behalf on the cross. You know those Christians who think they can lose their salvation? And the woods are full of them. Well, let me, let me help you understand their process of thinking, because I used to be one. In my earliest, earliest years as a Christian, first couple of years, I strongly believed I could lose my salvation. And I became an apologist for it. What a horrible thing to defend. You can lose your salvation. But I was defending it. Here's the problem. The process of that thinking is, Jesus did not do enough. He didn't do enough. What he did on the cross was not sufficient. I have to do more. I have to add to what he did in order to keep my salvation. Do you understand how torturous that is to someone's soul as a Christian? How torturous that is. But you talk to Christians, especially those who came up in Pentecostalism, like my dear wife will tell you in her own testimony, every Sunday she was asking God to save her. Because She didn't understand at that time in her life. She did not understand that what Jesus did was enough. Sufficient. Sufficient. Your sin cannot undo what he did. Because if it can, then what he did was worthless. It was in vain. Why did he ever come? Why did he ever come and do what he did if we can undo it? No. We cannot undo the work of Christ in our behalf on the cross. The condemnation and judgment we deserve because of our sin, what did Jesus do? Jesus Christ has taken that condemnation and that judgment upon himself by his death on the cross so that so that we will never ever face what we actually deserve as sinners. We'll never face it. Haven't you ever read Romans? Oh, another verse in Romans, imagine. Romans 8 and verse 1, there's therefore now no what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Are you standing on that promise, Christian? I hope you are. Now, Let me make something clear, a very important caveat, very important caveat. This doesn't mean that we don't feel a legitimate guilt over our sin. This doesn't mean that we do not mourn with a godly sorrow leading to repentance whenever we disobey God. Okay? That's important. Very important caveat. If such fruit like this, where we don't feel any guilt whatsoever, where there's no godly sorrow, if... If if that kind of fruit is what's true of us when we sin, then we're not even saved. Okay? That's important. But also, even with a contrite and broken heart over our sin, we must never lose sight of God's grace and love for us in Jesus Christ. Never. Never. In Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 12 and going all the way to chapter 8 and verse 39 of Romans, Paul makes it so clear that God, by his grace in Christ, has dealt completely with our sin problem. Thus, our continual struggle with sin as believers is not a struggle to despair and hopelessness. How so? Let me give you three ways based on this large passage in Romans. First of all, We have been set free from the old power of sin that once ruled us because we're now living in spiritual union with Christ. Second of all, our inward conflict with remaining sin must never lead us to gloom and despondency but rather to joy and peace because our hope in Jesus Christ and his power to deliver us completely from the very presence of sin. That's where our hope is, that's where our joy is, in Christ who by his power has delivered us completely from the very presence of sin one day. That's what is coming, the certainty of what's coming. Finally, we must always remember that there is now no condemnation for us in Christ even when we fall into sin because Christ has taken that condemnation away by his redeeming work. All of these wonderful promises are all part of the glorious gospel. But if we do not know these gospel promises and are not applying them to our heart every day, then guess what? (laughs) We will wallow in the shame and guilt of our sin, being paralyzed by by the grip of heart condemnation because we have lost sight of God's grace and love for us in Jesus Christ if our brokenness over sin leads us away from Christ, then we do not understand the gospel. We don't get it if it leads us away from Christ. When we are broken over sin, it's when we should be the closest to Christ and clinging to his grace in the cross, because that is our only hope for forgiveness and cleansing and the renewing power of repentance. So, let me ask you Do you need the gospel as a Christian? Do you? Are you applying the gospel to your life every day? Are you reminding yourself that apart from God's grace in Christ, you're lost, unrighteous, and perishing with no hope of getting right with God by your own power? Are you reminding yourself that what you really deserve, what you really deserve is God's wrath and judgment, yet for the sake of Christ alone, you have received grace and love? Are you reminding yourself that On your worst spiritual days, you are not beyond the reach of God's grace. While on your best spiritual days, you're not beyond the need of God's grace. Are you preaching that to yourself? Are you reminding yourself of that? Are you reminding yourself that every day, every day, you need the righteousness and atoning work of Jesus Christ to save you. Every day is a day of renewed trust and faith in Christ as your only Savior. Are you reminding yourself that every day is a day that you're living under grace? Under grace in Jesus Christ every day. The gospel is not just for potential believers. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. It really is for actual Christians, believers. Christians need to preach the gospel to themselves every single day. If we would be kept from religious pride and self-righteousness, if we would be kept from legalism, and a false guilt that turns us away from Christ, then we must know and understand and apply the gospel to our souls each and every day. This should be a repeated spiritual exercise in the life of every Christian. Because like I said in the beginning of this study, no Christian gets over the gospel. No Christian grows beyond it. No Christian in their Christian life comes to a point to say, well, I think I'm going to the deeper things now. I can shelve the gospel. I don't need to hear that anymore. Okay, well then just stop reading Romans. Go ahead, throw it out. You don't need it. Chunk Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. Shall we keep going? Why don't you just take the entire New Testament and subtract it all? And and in fact, let's just go ahead and dig into the Old Testament. Because, you know, the gospel is there too. Just throw it all away. Well, you don't have much of the Bible left. Do you? We need the gospel. We need the gospel as God's people, as Christians. This is the reason why, as a pastor, I will never tire in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the church, to the church, because we still sin. We still have real problems with real sin, every one of us do. Our lives are still messy. None of us have been perfected yet in glory. None of us. We have not arrived. We're all still a work in progress. And part of the progress is to have our minds and our hearts daily renewed by the truth and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might be wondering, well, Pastor... If I could count how many times in this one sermon you have said that we need the gospel every day, I'd be a rich person. Why do you keep repeating it? Because you need to keep hearing it. And you only learn by repetition. A very wise pastor told me many, many years ago, he said, Kurt, don't ever forget this. Every sermon you preach, the people you preach to It's only one layer of that whole sermon that they get. So some of you may walk away from here and be saying to yourself, Well, what did you get out of the sermon? Well, Pastor Kurt said it. I got that, it. One layer. One layer. We learn by repetition, which is the reason this book doesn't change. That's the reason this book doesn't change. The message doesn't change. Same one. And if any of you are tired of it, then you need to do a serious spiritual inventory check on yourself, because that's a cold heart. And you're further away from the Lord than you realize. We need to get back to the gospel. We need to renew our hearts and minds by the truth of it every day. And so we start today all over again by God's grace and to his glory and for our good. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you continual thanks, Lord, for the saving truth of the saving good news of your beloved Son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you this morning, blessed Father, for what the gospel of our Lord Jesus reminds us of each and every day, when do we truly take it to heart and truly apply it to our souls. That in and of ourselves, all we deserve is your wrath and judgment. There's nothing we can do to merit your favor or acceptance. Absolutely nothing. And therefore, the sole basis of our standing with you, Blessed Father, the only way, the only hope that we can be justified by you is through the righteousness of Christ Jesus our Lord. It is only in his person and by his work that we are accepted by you, that we are forgiven all our sins. And we thank you for that today. And we thank you further, Lord, that there is therefore nothing that we can do as your people to earn, to gain more of your favor and acceptance than what we already have in Christ and because of what he has done. That we cannot either undo what he's done or add to it to make it even more sufficient. It can't be. It's enough. And we thank you, Father, for that. We thank you that everything Christ has done by his life, death, and resurrection, it is enough to keep us and secure us for all eternity in your favor, forgiveness, and acceptance. And we pray, Lord, this day, let us not forget such blessed truths. Let us not forget what is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, which is the gospel. Father, we thank you for what the Holy Spirit By the word of God has so graciously renewed our minds with today, illuminated our understanding with, and making us more confident in Christ and not in ourselves. For these things we give you thanks, in Jesus' name, for his sake we pray, amen and amen.